Well, when I was two years old, so I'm told, I got lost on the beach at the Jersey Shore. Apparently for quite a long time, my parents tell this harrowing story of what seemed like forever and of searching for me and searching for me before eventually finding me some distance away. Apparently not among the teachers. Just wandered off. At least these people claim to be my parents. Um, Now, we had a similar experience as parents with one of our kids when they were two or three years old. I asked my kids which one of them it was because I forgot. And they all remember, but they can't remember which kid it was. But they were about two or three, and we were living in Poughkeepsie. And we noticed they were missing, and we searched the whole house. It was evening. It was dark. We searched the whole house repeatedly, and we were unable to find them. It was a frightful experience. We're scrambling around. We're calling their name. We're looking outside in the dark. And finally, we open a small little storage closet in the house, and there they are, having shut the door behind them, curled up on the closet floor asleep which is why they didn't hear us yelling for them. Now, anyone who's a parent likely has a story such as this. I hope we're not the only ones that have a story like this. And anyone who's a parent or not can relate to the anguish Jesus' parents must have felt in our text. In fact, we don't have to speculate about this. Mary says, we were looking for you in great distress. However, this reunion is not primarily about the recovery of a lost child. This reunion takes us deep into the mystery of Christ, who he is and what he has come to do. And so, indeed, this is an epiphany text. This is Epiphany Sunday. This is about the unveiling of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at the text under the three headings there in your, in your bulletin outline Jerusalem, the temple, and Nazareth. Jerusalem, the temple, and Nazareth. So, first Jerusalem. Verse 41, so this is Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Tells us that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. It doesn't tell us that he went with them. We're not sure. Now, the Jews were required... They were required by the Torah to go up to Jerusalem, right, for the national feasts... Three times a year. And on these journeys, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. Psalms for pilgrims on pilgrimage. So three times a year, the Jews are reminded vividly that they are pilgrims, that they are journeying toward Jerusalem. Right? The city which is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God at the end of the age. So they journey to Jerusalem where they encounter God. God who is enthroned in the most holy place in the temple. The temple which is itself an earthly replica of the heavenly temple. So a devout Jew knows, right, that the very existence of the earthly city and the earthly temple remind them 
of their heavenly destiny at the end of their pilgrimage. Which is, of course, face-to-face communion with God in the heavenly city, in the heavenly temple, in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus' family went every year to the Passover in Jerusalem. So this is a devout, right, Torah-observant household. And we're told that when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now, we don't know if he went with them before this, but he definitely went when he was 12, and that's mentioned here for us, to some sort of important date or age. Right At 13, Jewish boys would be bar mitzvah. They become a son of the commandment. They become a full-blown member of the synagogue community. Now, there's some debate about whether these bar mitzvah traditions go all the way back to the days of Jesus or not. But one way or another, the fact that he's 12 and on the cusp of manhood is mentioned as important. So, the feast lasts a week. After seven days, the feast is ended, and the family and the other relatives and friends, right? for they traveled, they traveled in caravans, they're returning home. Which, if you have a map, right? It's, it's, they're at Jerusalem, they've got to go north up to Nazareth. And, and the text stresses this by its word order. The boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, you could bet that the other adolescents, after seven days of a religious feast, they're probably anxious to get back home. But not, not this child. Think of it. What must the Passover have come to mean in his 12-year-old consciousness, his personal sense of identity as Israel's Messiah. After all, this is not just another attendee of the feast. This is the one who's destined to be the Passover lamb, to replace all the sacrifices of all the pilgrims from all over the world. So his destiny is tied up with this bloody feast, And this city. So, of course, something grips him and fastens him and holds him there. He stays in Jerusalem. And his parents, we're told, didn't know it. Apparently, they're not the hovering helicopter-type parent. They, They didn't know it. They supposed him, the text says to be in the group somewhere. Now, that that seems reasonable enough. Seems like a reasonable supposition. So they go a day's journey on that supposition, and then they have to stop for the night. And then they begin searching for him among the acquaintances and the relatives, and they don't find him. This is when the fear starts to set in if you're a parent. And obviously, this is highly disconcerting. Now they have to go all the way back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's a big city. They're from Nazareth. I mean, compared to Nazareth, there's lots of people in Jerusalem. Lots of strange places. Lots of bad things can happen. Lots of nooks and crannies. 
And you can imagine the fears flooding the minds of his parents. So they return to Jerusalem, the text says, searching for him. So my second point then is they're back in Jerusalem. Second point is the temple. So it's a day's journey out. It's a day's journey back. And then verse 46 says, after three days, so probably another day looking around the city, they find him in the temple, which is, of course, the heart of the city. It's the dwelling place of God's radiance. It's the earthly replica of the place where this same Jesus dwells today in glory. I mean, theologically speaking, with all of our hindsight and all of our perspective, we might ask, where else would he be? But of course, it's easy for us to say that, right, from the distance that we're sitting at. And next we glimpse a remarkable scene. Really, this is an extraordinary scene. He's in the temple. He's sitting among the teachers, the doctors of the Torah, listening to them and asking questions. I mean, notice there's a lot that could be said here, but I want to highlight a couple of things. Notice his humility. He's the son of God. He knows and he sees all that the Father is and does, he tells us in John's Gospel. Or even if we just take it from his humanity, from a merely human vantage point, right? He's young, he's gifted, he's extremely bright, which usually entails being overconfident and arrogant. Yet, he wants to be with the teachers, He takes the posture of a pupil. And as we'll see, he's also a contributor because everyone in this discussion is both a a student and a teacher. But what's remarkable is he doesn't say, I am God. I have no need for the tradition. I have no need for these people. I I have no need for what the rabbis think. I'm in immediate communion with my father. I'll read the Torah and I'll make up my own mind. Stop with all this book learning stuff. Jesus is not a proto-Protestant reading his Bible in splendid isolation. He sits in. This is where he wants to be. And it's clear from his public teaching ministry, right? We know this, that Jesus paid great attention to the debates of the various schools of thought in his day and to the intricacies and the details of these debates. He is very much, from the point of view of his humanity, a first century Jewish rabbi. He knows, even if he's going to break from them and critique them later in life, he knows that texts are learned by being read in community. Right? Texts are learned by being read in community. This is why we have to read church history or at least accumulate commentaries on the text. Right? Texts are not read in isolation. 
And Jesus, by the way, does not break with everything the rabbis say. Right? He corrects them. He refines them. He speaks his own final word. But he inherits a lot of this stuff. Humility, then, is the chief virtue of any close reader of a text. Right? It is the chief virtue, docility before the text, especially of Scripture. So hubris and historical isolation, that is the father of heresy. It begets heresy. Jesus is humble before the text. And he's humble in the midst of this community. It's quite remarkable, and there's this big back and forth going on here. You can tell, right? There's iron sharpening iron. And you know what his humility looks like more specifically here? The text tells us. It takes the shape of listening. He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them, which meant he actually heard their arguments. He actually heard them. Listening to a text in the community as it's expounded by others before speaking about it, right? Before pontificating, listening. How long did Jesus listen? Well, 30 years before he started teaching. 18 years after this event, he's still listening in silence. Right, I always tell young men, clasp your hands over your mouth and go away for a couple of decades. And then you can come back and maybe you can start to talk. Right, this is the Son of God, the eternal Word of God, and He listens. He listens for decades before He talks. Sustained, reflective, silent meditation in the presence of God who speaks in the text How? Through them, through these rabbis, second-class scholars compared to him, some of whom will later be involved in his execution. He listens to them, the others, because they're the authoritative teaching office. This is the posture Jesus adopts here. It's an act of self-emptying. It is death to one's need to weigh in. That's a need we have a hard time dying to, isn't it? The need to weigh in, the need to chime in, the need to be right, the need to criticize. This is a descent into the lowest place. He places himself under the text. He clothes himself with this intellectual and spiritual and theological humility before these men. He banishes all other thoughts, all other cares, all other agendas. For this text, the Torah, and this place, the temple, they are his delight, they are his very life. But he doesn't, he's not just listening. He asks them questions, the text says. Right? Not accusatory questions. That's not what's happening here, right? Not the kinds of questions by those who already know the answers that they've barricaded themselves into. You can't have a theological conversation, right, where the mode is hyper-defensive. These are serious, probing, respectful, seeking questions. 
requires a lot of love and a lot of trust to have a conversation like this that he's having with these men. But he knows, Jesus knows. You know, there's this great poem by Alexander Pope. Some of you know it, right? It's got this famous line in it. A little learning is a dangerous thing. A little learning is a dangerous thing. And then at the end, it says, shallow drafts intoxicate the brain. In other words, drink shallowly and you're intoxicated with your knowledge. And then the next line is, drinking largely sobers us again. Right? A little bit of learning, you're intoxicated with yourself. A lot of learning, you're humble. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drinking largely, deeply, from the tradition, that sobers a person. So Jesus is not just listening. He's asking these questions. And so both, both skills, if you will, both listening and asking good questions, they show an ability to escape the confines of our own blindness or our own narrow worlds or our own paradigms. So he who is the truth, right? He is the truth. He is the answer. He has all the answers. Listens. And then ask questions. It's quite remarkable. If you listen to the text in a community, and then you let the text question you, you'll be able to ask good questions in return. We are interrogated by this text. right? We are never the masters of it. And then once we're interrogated by it, we can interrogate the text in a holy fashion. Right? This ability to ask the right questions of a text is crucial because the text of Scripture, beloved, is bristling with questions just waiting to be asked. It's a turbulent text because it's seeking to uproot us and to remake us and to break us and to slay us and to raise us from the dead. That's what the text is trying to do to us. We read it like it's a piece of harmless devotional literature. So those who are not, so we, we, ha, we tend to have, we're all born this way, right? Naturally, we have corrupt reading and listening habits. Where you have corrupt reading and listening habits, you continue to read the text of Scripture and come away unscathed. Those who are not really listening will not be asking the right questions. And verse 47 says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So notice there's a new piece of information here. Jesus is not just asking questions. He's being asked questions. And they were amazed at his answers. Obviously, this is not his first serious engagement with the text. Right? And these are not ABC type of questions. These are the rabbis, the scholars of the Torah in the Jerusalem temple at the heart of first century Judaism asking about the complicated deep stuff. In this robust discussion, Jesus is amazing them with his answers. He's obviously a budding first century rabbi teacher. This is a priceless text for us. right? Because this This ability to have a robust theological discussion where the text is at the center. 
where we have respectful listening and interchange, where the truth is the goal. This is all too rare a gift in our day. But it happens here. It happens here. And it's critical for it to happen to the church if the church is to make theological progress. And then finally, his parents show up. And the text says, when they saw him, they were astonished. Now think about this. I'm sure the parents knew quite a bit about him. I mean, this kid had some, shall we say, astonishing supernatural things attend his birth 12 years ago. So they knew that this was an extraordinary child. But when they saw this scene, they're astonished afresh. I'm sure they knew he was quite skilled with his Torah. But they never saw him in this context in his sleepy hometown in Nazareth. It's one thing to go to Nazareth Community College. Right? But the University of Jerusalem, they've got better Torah scholars down there. And his parents walk into this scene, and they realize, oh, we've never seen anything like this back home. And so Mary and Joseph, they join the crowd of those who are amazed. And beloved, amazement is the right posture toward Jesus Christ, even the young Jesus Christ. No amazement, no overawed amazement, no Christian worship. And so his mother says, now remember, she's distressed. (laughs) She says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, as I said, we can all, I think, sympathize with Mary and Joseph here. It's natural. But I want you to hear me. She's wrong. Right? This is misplaced parental anxiety. This is disordered parental anxiety. This parental concern that Mary expresses here is not justified. That seems harsh. You know how we know that? We know it from Jesus' response, which in our minds should go something like this. Oh, mother... I'm sorry I caused you and father anxiety. I should have left when you guys left. Or I should have sent a message that I'd be staying behind for a few days to study and that I'd find a way home with some friends. I'm sorry you're distressed. I should have been more considerate. No. His astonishing response is, and by the way, These are the first words of the word made flesh in Luke's gospel. These are the first things Jesus speaks in the gospel to his distressed and distraught parents after 72 hours of searching for him. Why were you looking for me? Could you imagine? Why were you? It's like, you you were looking for me? What do you mean? Your father and I have been searching for you. Are you kidding me? You're looking for me? I wasn't looking for you. I just assumed you knew where I was. In fact, he basically says this, you should have known. There's no mystery here. 
My goodness. Then we come to the heart of the text. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There's no theological ambiguity about this for Jesus. There's no disrespect of his parents, no nothing. You shouldn't have been looking, you should have known. How could you possibly be concerned about where I was? There's only one place I could have been. Because the temple is my father's house. And my bond with the father is my life. Now that's shocking enough. But it's, it's deeper than that. He is saying, and this would be a cutting thing for his parents to hear. Your concern, and the concern was voiced this way. Notice, it was voiced this way. Your father and I have been searching for you. Your concern, voiced that way, Jesus says, is misguided. I am with my father. Imagine how those words would land with Joseph. I am with my father. Stop being so spiritual, Jesus. We're talking about your earthly father. I am with my father. You should have known. I don't understand. Why are you looking for me? Of course I had to be here. Among other things, the text is about who is Jesus' true father. This answer of our Lord's amounts to a claim to divinity. I am the divine son and the father-son bond rooted in the eternal life of the Trinity, is the heart of my mission. How could you not know that? Well, I know how. We don't even know that. (laughs) Which Which person among us is obsessed with the filial, eternally begotten bond of the Father and the Son when it comes to Jesus? This is not merely a human bond I have with my father, he's saying. God is uniquely, singularly, in an exclusive way, by nature and not by grace. God is my father. He's essentially saying to his parents, I am eternally begotten of the father. I am God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made of one being with the father. Thus, I and the father are one. I came forth from the glory of the father, and I shall, after a future Passover, destroy this temple. And return to the heavenly temple of which it is a type. And I came so that the eternal face-to-face communion which I have with my Father in joy and in delight and in splendor can be shared by my reconciled people in the heavenly glory. That is why I must be in this temple. I must. Notice the word must in the text. It's a necessity of the divine decree. There's no doubt about this. I, I must be there. It's as if Jesus thinks Mary and Joseph should have looked among the acquaintances and the relatives on that first night, a day's journey out from Jerusalem, and said, oh, okay, he must be in the temple. I must be in the temple. It's a necessity of my vocation. And it can't be avoided or subverted by my family's travel logistics. I must be in my father's house. Why? Because I'm the Passover lamb, and I'm going to bring all my scattered people to that house in glory. 
So that's the temple. Finally, Nazareth. Look at, let's look at verse 52 first. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's a statement of his full human development, right? His intellectual development, his spiritual, physical, social development as a human being. He who is the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, is also fully man. Human body, human soul, human mind, human relations, fully God, fully man. And notice, notice that Jesus learns in his humanity much the way we do. He increases and he grows in wisdom. We saw that in the text by reading, by listening, by questioning. By the use of his rational and cognitive powers, by sustained attention and effort, by curbing unwholesome curiosity, by a refusal to be distracted by secondary matters, things like, I wonder if my parents are worried about my whereabouts. Right? He learns by hard cognitive labor, by studiousness, by patient, sanctified intelligence. He learns in this way and not some magical, mystical manner which bypasses the demanding call to true scholarship. Though, of course, it is true he always sees and knows the Father. And he is infused with supernatural prophetic knowledge as well. But nevertheless, he gains knowledge also experientially the same way we do, right? By going to work for it. This too, by the way, is part of his saving humility. It's a wonderful text, by the way. I see some college students here. It's a wonderful text for students, right? This is part of Jesus' saving humility. He assumes a human mind, and he lives out the challenging and the easily defiled life of the mind, and he lives it out flawlessly. And that's what makes Jesus our wisdom, our counselor, So even though he must, he must be in his father's house, he is still subject to the slow, plodding, ordinary, everyday, incremental rhythms of life, right? Biological, intellectual, social growth as a young boy. And even though his parents had no idea what he was talking about, right? The text tells us that. This whole thing about I must be in my father's house, it it was lost on them. They had no idea what he was talking about. And yet the second person of the Trinity, in unbreakable communion, not with Joseph, but with the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, this one, get this, returns with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Eventually, the new family will transcend the human family. But for now, Jesus has, if you will, overlapping families. He's got this earthly father and mother. He's got the heavenly father. So he leaves. He returns home. And he's submissive to his well-intentioned and theologically confused parents. Without any dispute, the greater is submissive to the lesser. So young people, do you think your parents don't understand you? Well, well, welcome to the human race. You think you're smarter than your parents? 
And therefore, maybe you shouldn't have to submit to them. Behold the God-man in this text. His parents did not understand him. And yes, he's a lot smarter than they are. And he takes this yoke, right? He takes this humility upon himself. He stoops down. Stoops down. And that means we should take up the yokes that God has laid on us, especially the ones we think are beneath us, imitating the humility of Christ in this text. So I want to close by noting one last thing here. Verse 50 tells us, verse 50 says, Jesus' parents did not understand the saying about having to be in the Father's house. It was lost on them, and it's, it's not hard to see why. It would be lost on us if we were in their position. Right. We see through a glass darkly, and we're often bewildered by revelation. But there's a lesson here in what Mary does, right? She treasures these things up in her heart. We should not give up. Nor should we be dismissive. We should do what Mary does here. She doesn't say, look, this is hard. I don't understand it. I'm a young mom. Whatever. Let this be for the scholars. Let's let's move on to something else. Let's get back to Nazareth. How could she do that? She couldn't do that. The mystery of her son is the mystery of God and the mystery of the world unpacked. So she treasures it up. She waits for light. You can do the same thing, right? We can do the same thing together. You treasure the word in your heart without having anything like a clear understanding of it. That's okay. Sometimes that's all we can do. Get it in there, hold on to it, wait for God to water it. It doesn't say she understood it. It tells us expressly she didn't understand it. But she treasured it. And eventually... In part through Mary's own eyewitness testimony, Luke writes this gospel. And the church probes just enough into the mystery of the God-man. Just enough for us to see his light. This one, who we now know must be in his father's house. Right? The father and the house that all the fallen children of Adam yearn for. Right? We all have this craving. For father love, right? For the love of the father. For the community, for the house, for the acceptance. There's something very primal in this language. I must be in my father's house. Something deeply, desperately needed by us in this language. So back to wandering on the Jersey Shore. When I was looking through this text, it reminded me of a Bruce Springsteen song called My Father's House, in which a son dreams about reconciliation with his estranged father. And in the dream, he runs and runs toward his father's house till he falls shaking into his father's arms. And then he wakes up, and he drives to the house that he saw in his dream, only to find out that nobody by his father's name lives in that house anymore. And the father's house shines out there at the end of the song on the hill across a dark highway where, quote, our sins lie unatoned. Can't get back to the house. Cannot get to the father. And the song ends with this sad, unfulfilled yearning 
for the Father and his house. You know what's missing from the song? The mediator, the son. The son. You need the son to get to the Father's house. And the Father revealed through this son is no dream. On a future Passover, this Father will give this son so that your sins never lie unatoned. This son is in his father's house so that we too, prodigals all, may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of our lives, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Amen.